All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you are visiting, we are currently going through the book of 2 Samuel, so you're still kind of early on in our series through 2 Samuel. We're at chapter 4 today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to pick one up over on the resource table so you can follow along with us. Uh, The journal Bibles that I was telling you about, some of you asked, we ran out of them. We have ordered them. They have not been received yet, so once we get them, we'll get those into your hands, but that is Second Samuel chapter four. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter uh, right now as we start our time. So this is God's holy word. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana. And the name of the other, Rechab, son of Remon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites led to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Remon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Baana set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as to get wheat, and, when, and then they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah. All night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Remon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded the young men, and they killed him, killed them, and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, as we open up the pages of Scripture, as always, we need divine light. Uh, we pray, God, as we consider something that happened so long ago, that you would allow us to ultimately see Jesus in all this, that you would help us to see how this is relevant and significant to our life this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had to fill a job opening? Anybody ever had to do a job opening? Uh, You are part of the process of finding a replacement for maybe a past employee, maybe a current employee who is going to be going, or a current employee that did not know they were going. Either way, you are looking for a replacement. Uh, My best friend is currently going through that process uh, with his church. He's a pastor. He's a lead pastor at his church, and they are bringing on a new position. They're going to bring on a worship slash... uh, 
shepherding care, uh, pastoral care pastor. So he's been going through the process, and it has been a slow process, to say the least. Uh, They have very clear parameters. One, he's going to be leading worship, so he needs to be able to sing, needs to be able to play some kind of an instrument. They also would like somebody with a little experience an individual who's able to, to work well leading a team. And then lastly, because a major role besides Sunday mornings is he's going to be investing in and building into people's lives. So he needs to be able to shepherd. Well, they, they had a candidate. They thought he was a great candidate this week that fizzled out. So now they're back on kind of the, the first steps of looking for the candidate. And I think when you're looking for somebody to fill a position, you want to find the right person, right? You want to find somebody who is qualified, someone who is equipped, someone who is going to be a good fit and thrive in the opening. You don't want to just put anybody in a a position because it's open. And what we see today in 2 Samuel is there is a job opening. There is a position that is available, and it's the king of Israel. In the beginning, there's actually a king even in that position, but he's really not a king at all. And what we're going to see is the right person, the right candidate, as we've known for some time now, is on the scene. And we're going to start seeing him for who he is. And we're going to see a much better look at David as the one who is going to be sitting on the throne. And more importantly, this is a preview of somebody who's going to sit on the throne and that's going to be far more perfect. And that's King Jesus. So we're going to look at the need for a king today as we unpack chapter 4. If you want a preview of where we're going, we're going to begin by looking at a need for a king with courage. Right away, we're going to see in verse 1 that we have a king who allows circumstances to overwhelm him. And that's not what you want in a king. You want a king, whether it's sunny or storm clouds, a king that is able to lead with confidence and assurance. Secondly, we're going to look at a king with discernment. He's not easily duped. He's not tricked. As these guys come in and are trying to manipulate the situation to get his favor, David is not going to be uh, had by anybody in that regard. We're going to then see a king with a testimony. He is one who tells others of what God has done. And then we'll wrap up our time with a king with justice, that he's going to rule with righteousness as his, as his manner of leading. So let's get started as we pick up at verse 1 and we see a king with courage. It says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. So we see the daunting circumstances that now we're facing Ishbosheth. This is a crisis. I don't, I don't think uh, for people in Israel, they got it. Maybe you and I, as we read, we don't think it's that big of a deal. Do you remember who Abner was last week? Abner was the military leader. He was the go-to guy. He was the right hand of Saul. So when Saul was killed, what Abner did is he took one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and he put him, he elevated him, he replaced Saul in the position as king. But who was really the king? Who was the king? Abner. He was a puppeteer, and Ishbosheth was just a puppet, a paper king. On paper, he was the king, but he was really not the king. Abner was directing, Abner was the one leading. And what ends up happening here is Abner's gone, Ishbosheth becomes instantly a sitting duck. What's a sitting duck? 
Sitting duck is a term we use when somebody is very vulnerable, very unprotected. When you have a person in a political uh, position, especially in a country, maybe a ruler of some kind, what do normal rulers usually have around them at all time, 24-7? Security, protection, safety. Why? Because somebody in a position like that is always vulnerable for somebody not liking their leadership and coming along and replacing them by force. And what we see here is now his, his right-hand man, the one who is really ruling the country, is now gone. And now there's just this weak, cowardly Ishbosheth on the scene. And I think we can relate, though, with him. Can you not? Listen to what it says. It says that his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. And I think we're being honest with one another. We often allow circumstances to overwhelm us. Do you agree? When situations happen that we're not anticipating. And think of all the different areas of our life. Maybe it's financial difficulties where bills come up and you know what you have in the bank. You know how much money's coming in this month and you know what is owed and they do not match up. And it's overwhelming. Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go bankrupt? Are we going to have to foreclose? Are we going to have to sell stuff? What do we do? Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's some relationship conflict. Whatever the case may be, you and I, I think by nature, when we're living in the flesh, when we're relying on ourselves, circumstances overwhelm us. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 38, verse 9. He says, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stands far off. And he's overwhelmed. But not only is he overwhelmed, what is the impact on the nation when you have a cowardly king? Continue on. It says, in all Israel was dismayed. That they were afraid because of the reality that they have a king who's afraid. They're afraid. Well, how often do circumstances overwhelm you? Because not only do we have these daunting circumstances, look at what they need. They need somebody who has divine confidence. They need a leader who is bold, who's courageous, who is confident. Do we have a leader like that on the scene in chapter 4? Yes, we do. What's his name? It's David. I can't stress enough how important a strong leader is for a nation and the impact on the nation. You remember back in World War II, if you know anything about history, Winston Churchill was an extremely strong leader and he helped guide the UK through the World War II. One of his quotes is, success is not final, failure is not fatal, but courage to continue, that's what counts. And that's what they need. They need a king that whether the Philistines are on the doorstep ready to fight or it's a time of peace, they need one who is courageous and confident. And David is that guy. He's assertive. He, he, he's willing to make the tough moves. We saw what, what was our first scene of David showing that he's kind of a confident, uh, courageous guy. You remember that Goliath, right? 
Everybody, all these military people are afraid to death to go out and fight this one man. And David shows up and he's not even phased. He's like, I got this guy. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'll take care of him. And then the king's like, like you're, this is really not a fair matchup. And he's like, I've taken out lions. I've taken out bears. This guy is going to be no match compared to me. And, but it wasn't David's self-confidence. Who is his confidence rooted in? It was in Yahweh. It was in the Lord. And that's what we need is we need a leader who has confidence in God. But even David, we're going to see his confidence waver at times in the near future as we go through 2 Samuel. But who is David ultimately pointing towards? To Jesus. And we need his confidence as the eternal son of God Philippians 2.8, consider him when he looked at the cross. He was found in human form, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the importance of a spirit-led leader? Do you see our need to have confidence in the Lord? Because this is just not about kings. This is relevant to you and I. Where does our hope lie? Where does our trust, where does our confidence rest? And is it in our circumstances? Because the only time we will be confident is if our circumstances are good. If we're healthy. If we have money. If we have relationships. If, if everything is peachy, if it's sunny skies, then we have confidence. But you and I know how often is life sunny skies? Sometimes it feels like that's the minority of the time. That's the exception not the norm. And yet, where does our confidence have to be? It has to be in the Lord. And that's what we see. And that's the need here for the nation of Israel. They've got this king who's a coward. He's afraid. He's got a people who are afraid. And they need somebody that's going to step up and lead with the confidence in Yahweh. And that man is David. So not only do we have a king with courage, we have a king with discernment. Go down to verse 2 with me. So we go through. Uh, David's son has these two men who are captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana. The name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Remon, of a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. From Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites pled to Gatame and have been sojourners there to this day. So he's given a backstory on these two guys. And it's important because we need to understand that they are a part of ultimately the tribe of Benjamin. Why is the tribe of Benjamin important? Who was Saul part of? The tribe of Benjamin. So these men are part of team Saul, not team David. That's why it's a little bit surprising that these guys are all about team David, even though they're part of team Saul. So then we get this, what appears to be a random backstory. We're going to have you kind of Put this in the Rolodex of your mind because a few weeks from now, we will actually come back to him. But it's about Mephibosheth. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as he fled in haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Part of the reason I think it's is there is we're going to see it later. Also, he would have been a what? A likely heir if anything happened to Ishbosheth. So we, we need to be remembering that there is this person out there who is a rightful 
a person for the throne. So when you get on to verse 5, so the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Beana, they set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the house as it was to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. So this is the third person we've seen in 2 Samuel die from a stomach wound. For whatever reason, there's an emphasis on this. Uh, Joab's brother was killed that way, Abner was killed that way, and now Ishbosheth is killed that way. Uh, then Rechab and Baana, they escape. When they came in, they lay on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and him to put him to death. They beheaded him. They took his head, and they went by the way of Ereba uh, all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, and then notice what they said, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. Notice this is an attempt at God's will by man's way. They assassinate him. They don't kill him. They bring him. And we need to understand, once again, this is a power move. Why are these two men so bent on getting the king killed and then bringing his head to David? Why? Because they are looking out for themselves. It's the same thing. You remember the Amalekite? He finds Saul. He brings Saul's crown in his, his one arm thing. He, he brings it. He gives it and says, I just so happened to be on the field. I saw him. He was dying. I, I, I kind of mercy killed him because he asked me to, and I'm here, and you know, praise the Lord. You can be king now. It's that same kind of power moves. It's what you and I would commonly call like brown nosing, kissing up. Have you ever worked with somebody or maybe played in sports with somebody and that athlete or that employee would go out of their way to suck up to the boss and maybe you're that person. A couple of you are like, well, that's me. But isn't, isn't it kind of annoying? Like they do research and then they say, hey, you know, I have tickets to this game or this movie or this show. He's like, oh, I love that. I, I had no idea, even though they've been searching their social media to figure that out. And you're like, oh my goodness. Well, that's what they're doing. There, there's, there is no good motives on why they're doing what they did. They're thinking, okay, we kill him. David will become king. They knew the buzz. They knew what was going to happen. And by them kind of escalating the process, speeding it up, they're going to be in a good position to be rewarded. I mean, that's, that's their vision. They think they're going to get credit for, for what they did. It, it's, it's, it's the idea of seeking God's will by man's way. Remember in the book of Exodus, didn't Moses try that? So Moses was going to be the deliverer of the people of Israel. But do you remember what happened when he delivered the people of Israel on his own? He killed the Egyptian, Exodus 2.14, and they responded, Who made you prince? And judge over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then what does he do? He, he flees. He's in the wilderness. And then eventually he comes back. It's, it's that idea. So I think we do need to look in the mirror. We need to evaluate how prone are you to try to force your agenda in life? How quick are you to even give credit where credit is not due? Because notice who they give credit to in this. They look at him and say, God did this. The Lord did this. And the reality is David's going to respond. Is not The Lord allowed this to happen, but you know who did this? 
You did it. Don't give credit to God for your sin. Because at the end of the day, what we need is God's will, God's way. We need a king that is not easily deceived or tricked. Because he, they don't get the response that they're anticipating, as we're going to see. But they look at him and say, you know, God did this. This is, this is his handiwork, and you get to reap the harvest or reward. How naive are you? How naive are you? Who here has been duped at all by emails, maybe scam the scams? Has any or anybody here ever won a few million dollars from a prince over in a third world country? Anybody? We have a bunch of us. Good job. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's fun when you get those emails. And you're like, oh my goodness, like, why did they pick me? I'm so undeserving of these $3.2 million in euros or whatever. And I'm like, what's the exchange rate on that? And it's like, the only thing you have to do is this, 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 and this. Like, don't you want a king who knows the difference between truth and falsehood? Someone who has discernment. Somebody who has wisdom. Because it would have been so easy for David to justify what happened. To rationalize. I'm, I'm never surprised at how Christians even can explain away poor decisions. Sin. I had a classmate in seminary, left his wife and three kids for a woman on staff at his church. And he said, God wants me to be happy. And his definition of happy is God wanted him to commit adultery and be with this woman instead of his wife and three kids. Friends, it would have been so easy for David to say, you know what, good, Dude's dead. I, I, easy transition now to me as king. And, and, and David, though, he's, he's discerning. It's, it hasn't that happened multiple times with David? 1 Samuel 24, four, verse 4. Here's the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And what did David not do? He did not take his enemy into his hand. Because he wanted God's will, God's way. Isn't that what Jesus was like in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. Would there have been an easier way than going to the cross for Jesus? But it wasn't about easy. It was about the right way. It was about God's way. Hebrews 12, too, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so let's be vulnerable with one another. Do you rationalize your sin? Do you explain away situations? Is your end goal God's will, God's way? Because that should be our target, every one of us here today. That means I really want God's will to be done, and sometimes God's will is not what you and I want. And there needs to be a humility there, a, a, a willingness to say, okay, God, you know what's best. Think of all the no's in your life via prayer, via dreams, aspirations, where it did not happen. But as you look back, you can see that God was in it. So we have a king with courage. We have a king with discernment. But we also have a king with a testimony. Go to uh, verse 9 with me. 
Listen to his response to Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rima and the Barathite. As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Listen to that testimony. As the Lord lives. Is the Lord alive? Do we have a living, active God? Amen? So he says, as that reality, which is reality, the Lord has done what? He has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Think of all the adversity we've seen David go through so far. How many years, roughly, has he been on the run from Saul? A, what, decade? Over 10 years. And God has continued to protect and continued to provide. This is such a contrast to Ishbosheth. What was Ishbosheth's response when he saw that Abner was dead? Fear, coward, dismay, the people of Israel. And then you've got him here. He's saying, I trust, I know because my God provides. And notice what it says. Every adversity. Where's the exceptions in that statement? I mean, let's be honest. Most things in life, we don't have 100% confidence, right? I mean, most students don't get 100 every time they take a test. If you follow baseball at all, if you get a hit three out of every 10 times, so three times you get a hit, seven times you fail to get a hit, that person is an all-star. Think about that. We're used to that kind of like a difference. And notice what Paul, or not Paul, what David says here. He's gotten me out of every adversity. That there is not a situation that has happened in my life that God has not ultimately gotten me through to the other side. Listen to what Paul declared to the Corinthians. I've had far more imprisonments. I've had countless beatings. I've been near death. Five times I've received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers here and dangers there. All this adversity. And what does he say ultimately? My God is, is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. My God is with me. That God kept delivering him. He kept redeeming him. And not only did God do this, what does he do right here in this moment? He testifies to it. And I think one of the things that we need to be a, a people are people who testify to what God has done. Like I should be able, we're not going to, so don't panic. I should be able to go around this room and we could talk for days to be able to look back at all of the things that you have went through in life and how God has gotten you through them. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes when I look at all the adversity I've went through. And not because there's something unique about me, unique about my life, but because as a follower of Christ, like you guys are professing, I can just look and see what God has done. And he has been so faithful. And if he's been faithful to me and he's been faithful to you, what is he going to do down the road? He's going to be faithful. And like, that's what Israel said. He doesn't see it. Israel doesn't see it, but David sees it. David knows. David lived it. David has the t-shirt. He realizes what God has done in his life because it's not just his testimony. It's his trust. It's the one he trusts and it's the one in which his strength rested. I mean, that's, I would argue that is the secret 
of David's success as a king for a while was he trusted in the Lord. That's where his strength was. I mean, sometimes we wonder, like, what's the secret? What's the secret? Have you ever had, uh, maybe you went to a restaurant or somebody makes a recipe, and there's like, all right, my mom makes this. I've been to other people's moms, but man, yours tastes better. What's the secret ingredient? And usually people are very, very cautious about sharing the secret recipe. Well, it's love or whatever it is. And, and they're like, well, like, where'd you buy the love? Was it at Kroger? Did you get what part of the store? Because like, it doesn't taste, I think my mom loves me, but like her spaghetti doesn't taste like that. His secret, I'm telling you, and this is where he, we really see David is a man after God's own heart. Because he trusts in the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And even David, though, is he the perfect example of trust? No. You know who the perfect example of trust is? It's Jesus. He's the quintessential king. Not my will, but yours be done. Always about the Father's will. Always about doing what the Father wanted. Trust in him. And he's the one where our redemption rests. Are you trusting in the Lord today? Do you have confidence? Whatever's going on in your life right now, circumstance-wise, whatever your current lot in life, can you say what David says right here? As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Friends, that is the comfort for every single follower of Jesus Christ. That God, now does that mean his getting you out of every adversity means he removes you from the adversity? Not often. A lot of times he gets you through the adversity. There's even the possibility that he might take you in the adversity, but guess what? Then you're in the presence of Almighty God for all eternity. So that's the kind of king we have. We start seeing with David, he, he has courage, he has discernment, he has a testimony. And then the last thing we see is we have a king with justice. We have a king with justice. He goes on to verse 10. It says, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and they cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Notice what David is in this moment. And like I said, we saw him last week. He was kind of wishy-washy. Do you remember? Joab handles things pretty aggressively, to say the least. And, and the only thing David does is he's kind of distances himself from Joab. Even though Joab is his right-hand man, David is authoritative over him. David does his part to kind of step away. But now we see David with some resolve. We see David willing to step up because he's a king. Remember the problem of what was going on in Israel prior to Saul. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Listen to what it says. 
It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we saw the anarchy and the lawlessness amongst God's people. And we're seeing that even again now without a king. They kill the king. In Israel, it's, it's still kind of lawless. These kings are doing, these two brothers are doing whatever they want. But they do not get what they thought they would get. I remember, I think it was on April Fool's. I've seen this a couple of times where like local uh, police like uh, stations will have like a giveaway. Like uh, if you have an outstanding warrant, we'll wipe it clean kind of deal. And you can get a trip to Hawaii. I've seen different variations of that. And these criminals, guess what they do? They show up at the police station like, sweet, this is great. And guess what ends up happening? They're going there thinking they're getting a reward. They're getting a celebration. They might be going on vacation, and they are getting a vacation. But not where they were hoping for. Definitely not along the coast. No, they're going to jail. And that's it. They go there. I mean, you can only look at the surprise on their face. Listen to what he says. Hey, similar thing happened before, and they told me that Saul was dead. And you would expect me to be like, yay, Saul's dead. Guess what I did? I had him killed. You guys assassinated Saul's son in his bed. You killed him. You beheaded him. And then you brought him to me, and you think I'm going to celebrate? And what does he do? He kills them. He has them killed. And you see, that was David's job as king, not killing people, but to be judged, to be an instrument of justice. 1 Samuel 10.1 says this. It says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? That was Saul. It says, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their enemies. So that's what a king does. He protects his people and he acts in justice and he, he rules and he reigns. And we see David. David is not even official king of Israel yet. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But he, in that moment, he acts as a righteous judge and he deals with the problem. Romans 13, 3, verses 4. Listen to what it says about rulers. Rulers are not a tear to good conduct. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you see? You see what a king does? He uses them as an example. So he not only kills them, but it's pretty barbaric, right? Are you reading this? Hands off, feet off, hung out. Kind of gross, right? But what is David saying by that is that we, you've got a king here and he's not going to be taken lightly. And you don't, this is not the time anymore where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. You do what's right in your own eyes. This is the consequences because he's got a just king. They deserve what happens to them. And I think there's a part of us, you and I, deep down, and I think God has created us with this, is a longing for justice. I think it's part of the reason we were even talking about it in our life group this past week. Sometimes when you watch a movie or read a book and there's revenge in it and the person that gets revenged against is really bad, let's, let's, be, let's be candid. Feels kind of good, right? You feel a little guilty. Like, I probably shouldn't be happy that this guy is being killed, but like, man, it's about time. Now that's a warped 
twisted version, I think because of our fallen hearts, that we don't grasp justice like we should. But I think deep down, God wants us to long for justice. And here's the deal. David is a just king. But he is just the king. He is just the king. He's not the king of kings. And we're going to see that because we see the justice of David here. And then in a, a matter of time, he's going to have Bathsheba's husband killed. Nathan's going to confront him. Nathan's going to tell him this story. And he's going to be up in arms. And this is ridiculous. And that person should be punished as a result of what he's done in this story. And then Nathan looks at David and says, and you are that man. So we don't have a just king who's always just in this, this book. He's just the king. We, we need, David is the prototype. Do you understand? You'll see that sometimes with car shows. Well, they'll bring out this new car and it's really amazing. It's like, it's not for sale yet. It's, it's not the final product. This is, it, we've been working on it. This is, this is a model of what potentially will it be looking like. David and all the kings prior to Jesus, they're just the model. They're just the prototype. And some of the prototypes are really bad. Some of them are pretty good. But what we're looking for, what we're longing for, is the final product. And that's going to be Jesus. Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Well, do you long for that king to return? The one who's going to right every wrong. When you and I, when we read the, the paper, when we look out at the news and we see just the anarchy and chaos and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes and it seems like the wicked suffer and the wicked are, are celebrated and, and the wicked prosper and, and the righteous suffer and we see that and it's just like, where is King Jesus? He's ruling and reigning today and he's coming back. And that's what we have to long for and, and look towards. Because that's what we need. What do you need today? Think about it. What do you need? What are some of your needs today? Need oxygen, right? Everybody needs to breathe. Who here needs food? Who here is thinking about food right now? I know. Sometimes I see guys like, ah. I even see every now and then the whisper like, where are we going after for lunch? While I'm preaching, I'm like, come on. Because then when you do that, I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I've yet to do it in the sermon. Like, Abby, where are we going after? What, do we have stuff at home? Think of all the things we need in life. We need relationships. We need loved. We need cared for. Sometimes we think we need things. Like, maybe you need a homecoming dress. That's relevant to our house. What do we need? We saw it in the passage today. What do they need? More than anything right now in this passage. They need a king. They need a good king. They need the right king. They need one who's going to sit on the throne as they should sit on the throne. They need somebody with courage. They need a king with discernment. They need a king who testifies and trusts in God. And ultimately they need a king who is just. And David is that king for a season, but he's not the ultimate king. And friends, you and I, we need the same thing that the Israelites need. 
We need a better king. We need Jesus. We need him, and, and we have him as followers of Christ. And he's here, and, and he's with us, and he's, he's ruling and reigning, and anything happening in your life right now, whether it's a mountaintop experience right now or a valley, he's ruling and reigning, and he's one day returning. Listen to what Revelation 17.4 declares. For they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's our King, Lord of lords, King of kings. I think in the words of, of John in the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge our need of King Jesus. How easily this world distracts us. How easily this world causes dismay and fear. When circumstances catch us off guard that we're not anticipating and and not prepared for, we can feel as though you have somehow fallen asleep by the wheel. That you somehow are no longer sitting on your throne. And that is not even close to the truth. That you know the number of hairs on our head. You know our circumstances before they come to pass. And you are ruling and reigning. But ultimately you are doing it for our good and your glory. And sometimes that lot in life that you give us is a rigorous road. And it's hard and it's filled with adversity. But at the end of the day, we can echo those words that David says. As the Lord lives, he has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So we pray right now for the eyes of faith. We pray that we would be a people that as we face the trials of life that we inevitably are going to face, that we might be facing even right now, help us to believe, help us to trust, help us to see that God, you are faithful, you won't leave us, you won't forsake us, and you will get us to that finish line. So we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond?